welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled with Dr. Lori Gerber. The body is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. Dr. Gerber and her guests explore integrative medicine and cosmetic dermatology, combining traditional medicine, alternative health practices, new innovations, and technology, which work together to help you look and feel natural and age gracefully. Now, here is your host, Dr. Lori Gerber. Hi, and good evening, everybody. It is 6 o'clock on the East Coast. And I am coming to you live um, with our new radio show, Anti-Aging Unraveled. Um, And again, I'm Dr. Lori Gerber, and I do have with me an amazing physician in the functional medicine integrative uh, medicine field, Dr. David Blywise. Um, He is the adjunct faculty at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and uh, medical director of the University of Miami School of Medicine Osher Center for Integrative Medicine Conferences. Um, that was a mouthful. He has been um, giving lectures all over the world um, on this topic, and I would love to share his wealth of knowledge and stories because they are wonderful with you all um, this evening. So with a couple of technical difficulties, we do have him on the phone tonight. So without further ado, I will get him on, and he will start to kind of give us his story of how he got to come to non-traditional medicine um, as I did. All right, Dr. David Blyweiss, are you there? Dr. Gerber, I am here. Thank you. No worries. Thank you, and good luck on your show here. Uh, what, what you'll find in the, with the older, when I when older, I mean the, the functional medicine docs who are uh, certified and have been doing it for 15, 20, 25 years, is that we all had a similar story in how we got involved uh, moving from conventional medicine to integrative or functional medicine. And my story is very, very similar. Uh, I got sick. My colleagues and friends uh, didn't know what to do uh, with all the drugs. Uh, I was in the hospital. Uh, by the time I got out, I had chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And my colleagues and friends gave me all the best drugs, Dr. Gerber. I got Percocet. I got Xanax. I got the Paxil, and there I was, 20 hours a day on the sofa uh, for weeks and weeks, uh, bemoaning my situation. And my daughter came down the steps and said, Daddy, uh, are you a victim like other people you say are victims in medicine? I thought you're the guy. So that got me out of, uh, that got me off the sofa and into changing uh, my diet and the lifestyle. Can't can't, uh, change my genetics, but I can change how they how they react to, to my environment, lifestyle, and food. And 12 weeks later, uh, there was no, no medication in me, and I was, uh, I was fine. I had no chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. And that's what started me on that, on that pathway. So. And how many years ago was that? Oh, that was <laughs> 1999, so about uh, 22 years ago. Okay. Before I was thinking about medicine, probably, but I had a similar experience. So um, I, that's that's really how I got into this as well. I had my son, and after I had my son, I experienced an allergy to every thin skin fruit and every food under the sun, um, to the point where I really couldn't eat a normal meal. And traditional medicine didn't really tell me what to do. I <laughs> I was just finishing up um, residency and looking for answers, and I couldn't find anything. So. That is what brought us to integrative medicine. That's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what medicine can't do, right? Conventional medicine can uh, classically look for 
uh, a way to hide your symptoms, uh, but not actually get to the reason, the cause of why you have what you have. The, the, we didn't go upstream. You know, it's, it's the old uh, analogy where you're driving along and you have red lights going off on your, uh, uh, in the, on the front screen of your car. And it says oil or it says, you know, check engine. And what you do is you cut the wires so that the lights don't flash anymore. And therefore, your problem's gone. Well, that's what conventional medicine did. You know, we, 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 we got rid of the symptom, but you still had the process seeding and brewing inside of you. And it would only get worse. So, so, so let's talk about yeah. that a minute. I think that gives us a really nice transition. Um, you know, traditional medicine, you're right. It just teaches us how to treat a symptom and not a cause or, or a problem. Um, or where the causality comes from. And it really doesn't teach or address any of the interconnectedness of the human body. Um, so right. I love your stories about, you know, how medicine started, how we've lost the art of medicine. I actually did write my first med school application um, essay on the art of medicine, which I, I do agree with you has been lost. Um, so if you could briefly tell, tell us some of your stories, you have some great stories about um, the roots of medicine and how we really ended up where we are. Yes, I mean, uh, remember the pharmaceutical industry got started back in the mid 1800s, and people know about the Bearish Corporation and 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 getting bear aspirin, and we used chincona bark for quinine to to stop the symptoms of malaria. Morphine and opium were huge. Heroin was huge. So the world was going towards a pharmaceutical-based treatment of symptomatology, and we still had the medical schools that were getting people better in a, I don't want to say alternative, because alternative was using uh, an herb at the time uh, instead of a drug. So this was more integrative. It was nutritional. If you had issues with your skin, and remember, doctors 100 years ago knew this. That and obviously, an issue with antibiotics. I'm sorry? We're obviously talking pre-antibiotics as well. Pre-antibiotics, right, right. Uh, things like silver. Right, silver being used for thousands of years. They didn't know why it worked, but if you were if you were a, a, a commanding uh, general king, you wouldn't go into an extended battle without your water bottle, your water barrels uh, being lined with silver. You know, the the settlers put silver coins in their in their water barrels to keep the water pure. My grandmother did that in her milk to keep the pure. They didn't know why. It was only about a hundred years ago where the the research began, even though we've been using silver for, for millennia, and it wasn't until, actually it was 1942, um, March of 42 in World War II when penicillin became uh, uh, available on the battlefield to fight septicemia. And from that point on, uh, silver got kicked out of the, the medical world, even though it didn't have any of those side effects that, that antibiotics do, right? Antibiotics will napalm your intestinal microbiome Whereas silver, uh, the silvers today, the bioactive silver hydrosols, will not affect the diversity of the microbiome. They'll kill bad bacteria, some good bacteria, but things grow back. And um, so we, 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 we started out with the schools that were teaching osteopathy, homeopathy, nutrition, acupuncture, um, meditation, and come around 1910, uh, um, J.D. Rockefeller, and Andrew Carnegie, who had put initial monies into uh, the, the nascent American 
uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, had Abraham Flexner go around, it's famous, it's called the Flexner Report, uh, to standardize uh, medical education. And what that meant to them was they gave a million dollars, which, you know, 110 years ago was real money, uh, if those medical schools would drop teaching nutrition and homeopathy and acupuncture, meditation, and use these patented nostrums that they were the original uh, uh, founders of. And if you didn't take the million dollars and join them, the hospitals that they were building and the universities they were building that would connect to the medical school, um, you wouldn't be a part of it. And those, and those medical schools that said, this is crazy, you know, we're, we're not going to do this, they all closed. They all closed. And the ones that welcomed uh, that money and uh, hooked in with uh, the hospitals and universities being built, they're the ones that are still around today. But they dropped all those other teachings. You know, even today, I think it's um, 24, 20, 24% of medical schools give a few hours of nutritional education, nothing that you and I would recognize as nutritional medica- uh, education, but um, they they. they some of them do a little bit. But again, you ask your doctor about the nutrients and supplements, they have no idea. And classically what they'll say is, you know what, I don't know anything about that, but it can't be, can't be good for you. Even That's, though yeah. properly prescribed medication is the number three cause of death in the country. So. And that's why the subtitle is what your doctor didn't tell you. Um, because I do agree. And we, we were not trained in any of this prior to coming out of med school, right? I mean, this was not something that was part of our curriculum at all. Right. Um, and, and the problem with that is, is that medical, the, the half-life of medical knowledge is now something like three years. So when I hear uh, doctors say, you know, if I didn't learn this in medical school, then it's not real. Well, <laughs> excuse me, doc, but you graduated 30 years ago. So you're 10 half-lives down of the information you should have to treat. And you know what it's like. I've gotten, I got off that, uh, that rat race many years ago, uh, uh, not having to deal with the, the vagaries of insurance and the amount of time it took to pre-authorize somebody to get a medication that they needed, uh, only be told that it wasn't covered and find something else. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's just awful. They're not, we're not physicians anymore, right? We're, we're technicians. Um, we're healthcare providers. We're not physicians. So, but yeah. you know how I feel about that. Well, I do. And that is also when we talk about the electronic medical records and not having time for a patient, not being able to do a physical exam, not listening to what a patient has to say. Um, I do pride myself on listening to symptoms, which, you know, if you listen to someone long enough, they're going to tell you what's wrong with them. Um, remember, remember they told us that the first day in training. <laughs> <laughs> if you listen well enough and ask the right questions, the patient will tell you what's wrong with them. But we yes. don't give that. What is the average time now? 18 seconds before the doctor interrupts the patient? 18 seconds? As opposed to my taking a history for half an hour, right? Or an hour. or doing a physical for, for half an hour. Um, I, had, uh, I had family practice chief of family practice for a major medical school on my exam table. We did the history of the physical. And when he, when he got off, when I got done, he said, we don't, we don't uh, do this anymore. We don't, we don't train for this anymore. And now I found, what was it, a month or two ago that um, the, the National Medical Board is 
saying you don't have to train new physicians in clinical physical examination. You know, you have blood tests, you have scans, uh, 20 minutes, new patient, move on to the next one, write a script and move on to the next one. So, yeah, it's very scary. It really it is. is. It's, it's no longer medicine as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I feel like that's something our patients need to understand is that this is something that unfortunately um, has been, society has really pushed to the side, but monetarily speaking, you know, it's all about numbers and what's, and what's good for the, the, the pocketbook of the larger person. And it's not always as best for the patient. Um, and put yeah, in the patient and electronic medical records uh, are for the insurance company. Yeah, exactly. They're not for the patient, right? So they know how much to pay you or what not to pay you. So you have to check off the dozens of boxes um, or else you won't get paid. None of that includes hands-on uh, examination or, or listening with, the, with, with a, a, a sympathetic or an empathetic ear to what a patient's problems are. So, again, when, when, I, when I had the full uh, practice, the functional medicine practice open, I only saw maximum maybe two or three new patients a day because it was two hours. Right. It was it was yeah. two hours. And, and if I didn't hear at the front desk when that patient left that they had never had uh, uh, a physical exam like they had with me, then I know I didn't do my job. Exactly. So, well, let's yeah. let's uh, let's give the people what they want to hear. How about that there? I've been having tons of conversations since covid um, about chronic inflammation. And um, that is the topic of today's. Uh, show. And I do want to point out that we're going to cater it a little bit towards COVID at the end. My patient did have to cancel last minute for this evening, but we will discuss a little bit of the COVID, um, in, in, I guess, implications with chronic inflammation. Um, but I think there's, it's important to realize and for people to understand that chronic inflammation is um, something that can be caused by a million different things. And I, the gut is one of the biggest, at least in my mind, um, things that can create Chronic, chronic inflammation. You just talked about how you changed your lifestyle and your eating habits and really just got rid of your inflammation, right? So um, I think that we can start by talking about what are the causes of chronic inflammation? What are the, you know, we want to start with gut primarily, but what are the other things that are out there that might make the body not work effectively? I always call it short circuiting because I feel like that's the best way to describe it. It's just your body's on overdrive going around and around in a circle. Um, well, depending on depending on what we eat. I mean, there are yeah. foods that are inherently inflammatory. Um, people talk about red meat. Well, it's not all red meat. It's red meat that is not grass-fed and organic. It's red meat that has uh, uh, herbicides, pesticides, antibiotics, and hormones in it. Did you know that the bovine growth hormone that they inject into cows is only one amino acid away from human growth hormone? So you're getting something that is so close that if you get an uh, outside exogenous uh, boost of human growth hormone long enough, consistent enough, consistently enough, uh, you may grow cancers that were very tiny because now there's a growth hormone in there doing that, as well as the uh, inflammation from uh, meat that is not uh, grass-fed. Uh, so basically, you know, foods we eat, uh, grains are inherently uh, uh, inflammatory. Classically, uh, uh, wheat is sometimes uh, maybe gluten and not gluten. And again, with 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 uh, 
gluten, you're looking at, you know, barley and rye and wheat, primarily. Oats, not so much, uh, unless they're stored in a facility where, where wheat is being stored. But again, obesity, chronic obesity. Most people carry around the seeds of their illness in their fat. You have uh, a fat is inflammatory. Fat is a uh, depository for estrogen. So we know that you double your risk of breast cancer as a, as a woman if you're morbidly obese or if you're taking birth control pills for uh, an extended period of time. I think it's from 15 to like 35. Um, alcohol, alcohol <laughs> causes gross inflammation. Smoking causes gross inflammation. And chronic ongoing stress. Do you think we have any of that this year? <laughs> chronic ongoing stress. Those are the top top contributing uh, factors. But again, people should realize that, you know, acute inflammation is critical because that response will include the release of antibodies and proteins. Um, uh, Acute inflammation usually only lasts uh, a few hours or or days, uh, usually. When you cross the line to chronic inflammation, now uh, you're going to play into uh, asthma, cancer, heart disease, neurodegenerative disease, um, because those are all uh, secondary to those uh, to that level of chronic inflammation. So, so, so how long do you do think get- it takes to get leaky gut or a chronic inflammation in the gut? That's I think that's a good question. People say, well, how long do I have to eat healthy for this to get better? Or how long does it take to heal up? What a good question. What a good question. Do you know that it only takes five days for the intestinal lining to remake itself? And, and how I can change with only one cell thick, right? So. Well, and, and if you change your diet, you're going to change your gut microbiome, the, the good bacteria in there. And um, you can change everything within a week. You know, the, the, uh, remember that the intestinal epithelial lining is only one cell thick, right? And that with uh, some other factors that are the mucus secreted from it, uh, that forms a barrier that separates us from our external environment, right? Our gut is inside of us, but it's also outside of us. So in pathological conditions, the permeability of the epithelial lining can be compromised. And if you have little openings in it, now you've got toxins, antigens, bad bacteria, specifically the gram negatives with their lipopolysaccharide, you know, major component of their outer membrane, gets through to your body and you have, and you're sick. You know, we used to give the lipopolysaccharide to medical students to test to see if they would get sick from it, and indeed they did. So it wasn't even the bacteria Dr. Gerber, it was the coating of the gram-negative bacteria that was making people sick. And the, and the same inflammatory biomarkers that they showed were the same inflammatory biomarkers for people with major depressive disorder. The same sick uh, symptoms, you know, uh, I'm not getting out of bed, turn the light off, I don't want to eat, leave me alone. No, I don't want to canoodle, right? And all these things uh, uh, occurred from chronic inflammation, whether it was due to a virus, a flu virus, or whether it was due to a lipopolysaccharide from a gram-negative bacteria that got through the lining of your gut. And, ha- so, and so how do, you, how do you do that? Well, gluten will cause that. Gluten will cause the secretion of zonulin, which will open up that, uh, the barriers and allow awful things to get into your bloodstream. 
So it's that's why we call it leaky gut. Really, I mean, people ask me that all the time, and it's it's just the increase in intestinal permeability. It's not truly leaky. It's just your body is seeing things as foreign that it ordinarily wouldn't. Right. I mean, it sounds good. Um, If you want to be exactly correct, it's an abnormal uh, intestinal permeability going on. Right. And um, right. So stress will cause uh, uh, leaky gut. Gluten will cause leaky gut, uh, chronic, other levels of chronic inflammation and causes will cause leaky gut. Um, and in people who have a genetic predisposition, a leaky gut will allow environmental factors, uh, uh, toxins and allergens to enter the body and trigger that initiation and development of a disease, specifically an autoimmune disease. So, you know, it's, it's really important to keep uh, your, your gut healthy and your lining healthy. And we know that micro, gut microbiota uh, supports the epithelial barrier and the mucus, right? So we've got, I think it's three millimeters of mucus that uh, are, are on top of the, uh, um, the enterocyte on the uh, epithelial cell of the gut. And once you get through that, you're, you're getting into the body and you really shouldn't be doing that. So, so you, you hit almost all of my points from the next three paragraphs. <laughs> by the way, but I'm sorry. No, it's all good. We like it. You had a lot of information there and it was perfect. Um, so you talked about LPS and the importance, um, and how it basically creates this, um, inflammatory effect and autoimmune effect and can create, uh, basically leaky gut, right? So the question that I think a lot of my patients have, and that, um, I get asked all the time is one, how do I know if I have leaky gut? What tests can we do to see about leaky gut? That's probably the first and foremost question that I get. Uh-huh. And what do you tell them? Uh, so I tell them most of the time what they're telling me and their symptomatology will tell me if they have leaky gut, to be honest. Right. Uh, right, right. You know, right. I don't need Talk a lab test. They'll tell you what's wrong. Exactly. Right. Um, right. Although I have seen some really great testing that I've done more recently. Uh, maybe it's the geek in me that just loves the testing um, that tests for, you know, zonulin and expression of um, antibodies to various um, gut proteins that so you can actually see if you're fighting the lack of a better way to explain it fighting your own gut right so you can check for antibodies various proteins um yes it's probably a little bit geeky and yes it's definitely not covered by insurance um but the the positive predictive value of that is excellent and you can actually quantify that when people change their diet I've, i've watched it very quickly and i agree with you within about 7 to 14 days um i'm able to see a massive shift um, in antibody response, especially with zonulin and some of the other proteins. So right, right. Um, I don't know if you've done any of that yet, right. but. Well, you, you, you have to be careful. Um, once you know what's going on and you tell people there's a, there's going to be a change in their dietary lifestyle. Um, I don't put people on diets because people go on diets and by definition, <laughs> they go off diet. Right. Sure. Lifestyle. So if, if you do it, yeah, you're doing a dietary lifestyle. It's, you know what? I don't add extra sugar anywhere, which is inflammatory. Or, you know what? I am gluten-free, and I've discovered all these other great gluten-free products, but I'm gluten-free, and when I eat it, I sort of feel sick, right? I don't know if it's gluten or gliadin, but if they stop wheat, uh, they're, they're feeling better. Um, what about probiotics? People yeah. don't know what they don't know. You know, I say, well, you know, probiotics go, oh, I take a probiotic. It's like, oh, so what, what is it? It's a probiotic. 
Well, okay. My my favorite probiotics are those that have the the viable non pathogenic microorganisms, right? As well as the prebiotics to feed them uh, in the capsule, as well as the postbiotics, which is the products of metabolism of the prebiotics with the probiotics. And what are prebiotics? Basically, plant based food. And now they're putting some of that into uh, into the capsule. Those are what I want people to take, and I'd like them to take it. At bedtime, so I have, you know, hopefully a good seven or eight hours of re-inoculation. And my personal uh, favorite is um, those probiotics that have Saccharomyces boulardii in it, the, the good yeast. Because that good yeast keeps the probiotics in the gut for about almost two weeks. Because probiotics are not inherently yours. They're, they're, they're coming in, they're going out. You want them there as long as they can. But if, if you're getting people to change their microbiome by their diet, I tell them, don't be such a hero. Don't go so fast. Don't suddenly become 100% vegan because you're going to fart a lot. Because <laughs> that, that, that soluble slash insoluble fiber with the bacteria will generate, metabolize what it's supposed to do, which is making gas. Is it methane? Is it hydrogen? It's still gas. You know, it's, it's, and the average person um, toots 40 times a day, even though they may not know it. Um, obviously, some people do that more. But you will start getting more gas production, and people will stop their dietary lifestyle change because they have too much gas. So I have them go slow. Um, interesting uh, article came out. Uh, because, you know, I have discussions with friends of mine who are in the functional medicine world about veganism versus red meat causing uh, cardiovascular issues because uh, meat causes trimethyl uh, amine oxidase and goes from the gut and then through the liver, and then suddenly your, your coronary arteries are doing bad because of the red meat you're eating uh, and how it affects the gut microbiome or what gut, gut microbiome is changing the meat. Well, as it turns out, if you are basically vegan for uh, six solid days, two or three meals a day, and then on a Sunday you have, you know, four ounces, six ounces of whatever good grass-fed organic meat that you want to eat, um, it doesn't change your microbiome, and the TMA, TMAO level doesn't elevate. So people so don't have to... <laughs> Say what? It goes back to moderation, you know? It goes back to moderation. Yeah, moderation is for monks. And, um, you know, they live to be nine years old and they look like they're 30. <laughs> exactly. All right. So um, I, we addressed probiotics, and I 100% and I agree with you. Saccharomyces boulardii, Saccharomyces rhamnosus. I tell my patients all the time, look on the back of your bottle. If you don't know the... I always say bugs, but if you don't know the bugs that are in there, then don't don't tell me that you're on a probiotic. So, um, you know, we want to you want to be do you on have something. Any favorites? Um, you know what do I do? I, lo I love I um, love orthobiotic by Orthomolecular. Um, it is one of my so favorites. So do I. <laughs> I. So do I. Mixed bacteria, good amount. Saccharomyces boulardii. Yep. The the two other ones I like is uh, Pro Probulin P R O B U L I N. And uh, Dr. O'Hara's. Now, Dr. O'Hara's has the, the prebiotic, um, probiotic, and postbiotic in it, 
but he also has uh, the vegan capsule that has been made to withstand stomach acid so that it will go into your intestine. And some of the others will be destroyed in the stomach, especially yeah. if people are taking with a meal and they've got gastric acid being secreted. But those are my top three, orthobiotic, uh, Provulin, and Dr. O'Hara. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're especially treating if you're a on an antibiotic. Yeah, oh gosh, you should be taking two, two a day, most likely. Um, let, let me ask you a question. So, you know, I have a million patients who come to me and say, well, you know, why hasn't, you know, we already addressed the problem of why hasn't my doctor told me about my gut being my, my primary source. But when you address a patient and they're coming to you with inflammation, autoimmunity, something maybe you think is chronic infectious um, or exposure based, do you ever try to treat them without treating their gut? And there's probably a very simple answer to that. Oh, but. no, never, never. No, you, you go with the gut, literally. You always you go, go with, with the gut, right? Gut, you go with their gut. That yeah, always. It's always. almost my... I mean, you've got... Two-thirds, two-thirds, the three-quarters of your immune system is in your gut, right? Yes. 90%, 90% of the serotonin that your brain uses comes from the enterochromaffin cells in the gut, in the intestine. You tell that to people. You say, listen, you know, you need the right, the right uh, uh, microbiome to make your B vitamins. You know, it, it also works. Uh, it, it has neurotransmitter receptors, and it also makes neurotransmitters, certain bacteria. So it's critical that you, uh, that you treat the gut. I got two emails today from two follow-up patients, two consultations, uh, that within, it was 10 days, they said, I just feel so much better. And, and part of that is that they're pooping good. You know, when, when I have people who say, well, I go maybe, you know, every other day or every third day, it's like, well, let's see if we can literally, pardon the pun, move that along. And um, the, my, my, my best patients who follow uh, advice, directions, they have what's called gastrocolic reflexes. So... You know, first thing in the morning, they have a bowel movement, or within 20 minutes, if they're uh, eating breakfast, they'll have a bowel movement. And a half hour, an hour after lunch, they'll have a bowel movement. And the same thing after dinner, a gastrocolic reflex. Food in, uh, waste material out. Um, but the longer you keep uh, the, the waste material in your intestine, the more absorption you get of bacteria, of potentially uh, pathogenic microorganisms. So... So what other, when, besides diet, obviously, and we talked about probiotics, what are some of your other go-to, um, and I'm, I'm leading into um, really some of your, your knowledge on silver. Um, honestly, colloidal silver has okay. been one of my favorite products for probably the last 10 years. For, 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 for supplements that reduce inflammation, yes. uh, fish oil, acid, acid, curcumin, um, they're all linked to decreases in inflammation. Spices, ginger, garlic, cayenne, um, other foods that'll, that'll uh, decrease inflammation, olive oil, your leafy greens, obviously, organic to these, uh, tomatoes. Some people worry about the lectins, pull the skin off then. Uh, fatty fish, right, salmon, sardines. The lower you are on the predatory chain of seafood, the better off you are. One, because you're going to get a good amount of fish oils, and two, you're not going to get the level of mercury that's in the higher the higher predators, the tuna, the shark, things like that. 
And again, uh, you know, cherries, blueberries, things with a lot of flavonoids, things that increase inflammation, you know, white rice, um, white wheat, refined carbs, fried foods, such, you know, as French fries. Still love French fries, but I do know that when you, when you fry that carbohydrate or most carbohydrates at a high temperature in oil, you're going to make the acrylamide, which is carcinogenic, right? Uh, red meat that's not, uh, that's not organic and then processed meat. So those things all cause inflammation. But silver, I mean, you know, you're asking, what, what's, what's exactly the question you're asking about silver? Uh, let's just talk about silver and, and um, well, let's talk about silver for a minute. So let's talk about the history of silver. You gave a little bit of the history of silver and, and talked about um, silver being used as an antibacterial in um, water bottles, um, I, you know, silver spoons. I and mean, there's, you know, tons of history with silver. Born, um, born from right, a silver spoon, right? Silver. That's right. That's right. And, and that's funny because it, it was the um, wealthy or the aristocracy in England who um, had the money to put their water and wine and milk and food in silver containers. They drank from silver goblets. They ate from silver plates. And when the Great Plague uh, hit London, 1348, 1349, um, those people did not die uh, anywhere near uh, the level of everybody else that got the bubonic plague uh, because they had lower doses of silver chronically circulating in them. Now, granted, it wasn't the best silver. It was, you know, large particle silver that can cause you to become blue. Uh, nowadays, the, the new bioactive silver hydrosol, and again, the, the only company that has it at that level, is uh, natural immunogenics, right, with Argentin and or sovereign silver for, for the pop, for, uh, general population. Um, but it does so much more. I mean, it's in the last two years, they found that silver um, makes the white blood cells mature and active, and uh, they even throw out uh, what's called nets, neutrophil extracellular traps, to trap pathogenic bacteria outside of the cell. Thank you. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, I so it's, it's, it's just fascinating. And plus the, the, the silver hydrosol, those nanoparticles, actually clean up the debris after the destruction of those bacteria or viruses. So it kills them and then actually clears them up. The silver will attack the cell membrane, uh, primarily gram-negatives, because they have a very thin peptidoglycan layer around them, which is why they don't gram-stain positive. The gram-positive gram-stain positive and purple because they have a peptidoglycan layer that's eight to ten times thicker. So the silver is not going to get through that quickly. Um, once it gets through in the gram-negatives, then it's going to attack the internal ribosomes and proteins and bind them, and that binds the genetic material so the bacteria doesn't, uh, can't reproduce. But because they poke holes in the cell membrane, at some point, because of the internal pressure of the, what's in the bacteria, it explodes. It, it, it obliterates. It disintegrates. And, you know, we, we, I saw a great video of that. And after you see that, you go, you know what? I need to take my silver. Right. Uh, I, just, I had a 20-something-year-old a, a patient. Um, she was living with a boyfriend. She was in healthcare, And he got diagnosed with COVID. They're in an 800-square-foot apartment. And she says, so I, I was lost. But, you know, I didn't get sick. And we're living together. And we're breathing the air. And, and, and I said, and what, and what do you ascribe that to? 
She goes, well, you know, I'm taking the cocoon. And I said, you're taking your, uh, your Argentin? She goes, oh, yeah, I'm doing the sprays up my nose, um, you know, four times a day. And I take my teaspoon under the tongue for 30 seconds, three times a day. I said, so with your extra vitamin D and your zinc with her quercetin and green tea, because you remember the brouhaha over hydroxychloroquine? Yes. For you can forget. Okay. Well, <laughs> quercetin and green tea are also ionophores, just yes. like hydroxychloroquine, and they bring zinc into the white blood cell to fight infection. So if you're if you're taking your zinc and you're having green tea or quercetin tablet, your vitamin D level, hopefully uh, you're getting it up to about 70 or 75, especially if you have an autoimmune history, an autoimmune disease, and you're taking your curcumin with the silver, you're not going to have the, the cytokine storms that people are dying from because the silver controls inflammation and the other products help generally immune system plus a good probiotic. So yeah, she you did all those things. Oh my thunder! <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's thunder okay. That was the follow-up question. It's all good. We, uh, you, you keep going. You're doing. You're, you're right on it. I mean, the the question that I was going to ask you after that, after how does silver help us, was, you know, I know we can't talk about treatment or, or healing things, but have you used um, silver for COVID? Um, so have you never? So you have you guys it well? <laughs> All I can say is in my experience, in, in my clinical experience, clinical experience yes. right, um, our, uh, docs I know who have been using it have written me or called me and said, this is amazing. I know you can't say anything about it, but I have a patient. This was an ER doc out in California. Uh, patient, uh, his, his uh, SpO2 was 90. He was short of breath and he was off color. And he was coughing, and but he wouldn't go into the ICU uh, at that time to get on, on the ventilator. So he went home with a nebulizer and a bottle of Argentin from this doctor. And he nebulized uh, the teaspoonful four times a day. And by the end of the second day, uh, he had no symptoms. His color was back. His SpO2 was up in the 96 range, and he kept on doing it. And he goes, it, it's got to kill COVID. I said, we can't say that. It's not a drug. It is not intended to, you know, treat, diagnose, or cure any disease because it's not an FDA-approved drug and will never be FDA-approved because there's no patentability on it. The right, there's no, no way for a, a drug company to make uh, money on it. So, and then two articles came out, September 11th, and then I think about six weeks ago, two separate independent clinical trials on uh, uh, silver nanoparticles and COVID virus. Well, they started out knowing that the silver nanoparticles, the, the bioactive silver nanoparticles, kill SARS-1. That's known. Kill SARS-1, um, uh, respiratory syncytial virus in kids, um, hep B, uh, uh, HIV, so they had a starting point, and it came out, both studies, that the, the silver nanoparticles killed the, killed the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But you can't promulgate that because it's not a drug. And you saw what happened with some idiots who went out there saying their, their silver, some really crappy silver, unfortunately, cured everything, and the government jumped on them. So the companies that have the, the, 
the only silver to use, can't say anything. The, yeah, and I actually, I've been using it since probably April, um, maybe May, when um, I was doing a lot of COVID testing early on, and I've been using COVID or go using silver in my COVID and post-COVID syndrome patients for months and months and months now, with a lot of clinical data to suggest that um, not only does it shorten the course, um, but for my long haulers, yeah. my post-COVID syndrome, the inflammation decreases is, is exponential. Um, and, you know, and additionally helping with taste and smell to come back. So, um, you know, I feel like I didn't know that. I've been having tons of good uh, success with that. That and uh, I use uh, something called Biocedin. I don't know if you're familiar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Biocedin, I know that. Uh huh. So, um, you want to get their curcumin up. You want to get their curcumin up also. Um, Yes. If they have some fatigue, you want to also want to bump their CoQ10 and then their magnesium. Uh, not the one that makes you poop too much. I like the three and eight. I actually like Optimag Neuro, the mix vary from, uh, from Zymogen. But uh, you want to get the mitochondria back online, and that's going to be CoQ10 magnesium. Remember, you can't make ATP without magnesium because it's got to hook into magnesium ATP. So yeah. if people are deficient in magnesium, they're not going to have the energy levels that they need. So I would, I would add those things. I think what you're going to see is come flu season, September, October, November, um, people who have gotten both uh, injections of the, of the mRNA uh, are going to have massive uh, um, reactions. And those people will probably need to up their, uh, um, their supplements that we've spoken about just now. To right, keep so an, ab- an, from, abnormal, from get- an abnormal flu response, is that what you're saying? Like yeah, an ex- exacerbated, yeah. 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 I mean, they could, you know, uh, and, and we won't see. I mean, this is, you know, it, we're all in an experiment right now because there was no time to do a phase three open clinical trial on, 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 the, um, on the Pfizer, Moderna, or any of these. Um, so we're all in that genetic experiment. Someone asked me about the vaccine. I said, just so we're clear, I mean, you're taking it and you want to be safe with this, and that's going to help, it's not a vaccine, right? Vaccines prevent people from getting a disease or spreading it. This does not prevent you from getting the disease. This is made, these are made to um, make sure you don't get that sick that you're in the hospital and you could die. But you can still get the disease, even if you get these shots, because by definition, they're not a vaccine. So let me ask you a question. When you talk about, um, and I'm, I'm shifting back a little bit, but when you talk about COVID, because we have a couple of minutes left, and we're comparing it to cr- for chronic inflammation purposes, right? We, right? What is your take on the pathophysiology of this? I mean, I have said since probably day one, April, that COVID to me is like Lyme, okay? It's, it's a chronic turn-on of the inflammatory system. And I'm not, I'm personally not convinced that it completely disappears um, out of your system at this point. Now, do you have any thoughts on the chronic inflammation pathways? If they're, how is, how is it getting chronically turned on? I mean, obviously we know that the treatment protocols are very similar. Um, you know, the quercetin, right. the biocetin, the glutathione, the NAC, mag, right. um, silver, right. but 
What's what's your thought on it? I mean, I have I have some thoughts on it as well, so I'm just kind of curious. My, my, my thought my thought that although SARS uh, the CoV two the virus primarily causes um, lung infection, right? It binds uh, on the ACE receptors, ACE two receptors in the nasal epithelium, and then down onto the alveolar epithelial cells. We now know that they found it in the feces of infected people, and and we also know that the intestinal epithelial cells, the enterocytes that we're talking about of the small intestine, also express the ACE2 receptor. So people who don't have a strong gut microbiome, um, they're going to get sicker more. Uh, we know that respiratory viral infections cause some perturbations in the gut microbiome. So diet, environmental factors, genetics plays a role in shaping the microbiome, and that's going to shape your ability to decrease inflammation if you get infected. So it will stay around. Um, I think the mRNA, uh, which usually is destroyed in a short period of time, you're still leaving some protein, the spike protein that could get into the the basement membrane and uh, cause an issue, you know, uh, six months, a year later. That, that, that's my concern. So it's like I'm keeping my family hopefully safe by making sure that they take their supplements. And uh, I think it's going to do what most viruses do. It's going to mutate where it becomes endemic in the population at a lower level. And uh, remember, we have, we have retroviruses that became part of our, our DNA over millions of years, right? You, you, you can't make the syncytiotrophoblast in the uterus, um, in the amniotic uh, uh, sac, uh, without a retrovirus that became part of our DNA. In, in other words, if we didn't have a certain virus that became part of our DNA, then we wouldn't be able to have live births, stupid stuff like that. So it's going to do what other viruses do. It will circulate, it's going to be endemic, um, and it's well, going to I'm going to wrap up. As much as I don't want to wrap this up, I have to wrap this up. And I just lost power for two seconds and got power back on as well. So as if the, the technology difficulties couldn't get any easier or worse. Um, if you guys right. want to hear more about this topic, feel free to message me after the show at info at mydrlori.com, M-Y-D-R-L-O-R-I.com, and tune in next week um, at 6 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Um, Wednesday, and we will be able to give you some more information um, on some of these interesting topics. And Dr. Blywise, it's been a pleasure to have you on. I do appreciate it. Um, and sure. you know, anyone with post-COVID really syndrome, fast. there is hope for you. That is what I have to say, because we can treat this. I know we can help make there it better. Go. All right, there guys. Thanks so evening. much, Lori. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Anti-Aging Unraveled. Be sure to join Dr. Lori Gerber again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week and keep you aging gracefully.